Long-term listeners are probably aware that over a 30-year period, I frequently interviewed, both on stage and on radio, the late, great Oliver Sacks. Oliver was terribly interested in changing consciousness, whether that was caused by his crazy, brave experiments with drugs or by trauma. And I know Oliver would be fascinated with my next guest, another Oliver in Oliver Mall. Imagine this if you can. You're young, you're healthy, you're successful, you've always dreamed of being a writer, and although it's hard and doesn't earn you much money, it's paying off in many other ways. Now at 27, your first book gets rave reviews and you're suddenly on the festival circuit and uh, being pronounced as the, the new young gun. But then you're hit with a migraine that lasts for 10 months, 10 whole months of non-stop blinding pain. It drives you close to suicide. It forces you to abandon your career, your dreams and your very sense of self. So what do you do? Well, if you're Oliver Mole, you get a job on the Sydney trains and try to forget for a while about the life you had planned for yourself. Now, Oliver is making his debut on the Little Wireless program and, spoiler alert, he lived to tell the tale and has ended up being able to write about it in his new book, Train Lord. Oliver is joining us from Mallorca in Spain and a warning, dear listener, we will be discussing thoughts of suicide. But Oliver, you say Train Lord is a love story. Train Lord is a love story, Philip. And once again, thank you so much for having me in your program. Um, I'd like to say, yeah, at the outset that, you know, this is a story about pain, about chronic pain, migraines, mental health, depression, suicide. But above all else, and this was really important for me, this was a story about love and hope and healing. When did you get your first migraine? I first got them when I was in university. You know, these were, these were telltale signs for me. I mean, during university, I, uh, I more or less told myself that if I didn't have a book done by the time I finished then I was a failure. And that's a very extreme way of thinking, but at the time it seemed fairly normal. And so I would write a thousand words a day, every day for roughly three years. And uh, towards the end of that period, I, I did have a book, my first book that came out. But in the year, in the year sort of leading up to that, um, you know, I would, I would get these migraines that would last in the beginning for a couple of hours. And then as they progressed a couple of days, but uh, you know, they would always pass. And you'd, and, then, take, and you'd take the recommended muscle relaxants and uh, migraine yeah. medicines and carry on. The muscle relaxants were tremendous, but obviously a Band-Aid solution um, at, you know, at their worst. And, and what happened during the 10 months was that I wasn't able to look at screens. I wasn't able to look at phones. I wasn't able to read or write or then when it got really bad, look at lights, um, you know, I, I couldn't. I couldn't walk into grocery stores. I couldn't, yeah, read the things up close. And um, so after my book came out, the the one of the tremendous ones. Uh, I was on a flight to Melbourne, and I was working on a short story in the airport. 
And uh, yeah, I was just hit with such ferocity that I could barely read at my own launch. Um, and that, that probably lasted four days. And then again, I should have been listening to my body. You know, one of the things I've learned is that your body's always talking to you, but I didn't. And uh, did, did you have warnings that migraines were heading your way? Most migraine sufferers do. Um, I mean, yeah, an intense, an intense clouding um, behind the eyes, an intense sort of feeling as if my head was being constricted and then a sort of, when it got worse, a grinding, almost like being hit in the back of the head by a sledgehammer. When the actual big one happened, I was working on my, uh, on a grant, um, to go overseas for a few years to write my next book. And, uh, there was this audible sound that happened. It was a sound like a, like a pop or a snap. And I fell to the ground and I remember I crawled outside to the park near my house and I vomited in the grass. And eventually I returned inside and went to my room and closed my eyes. Um, but yeah, it, <clears throat> excuse me, it never went away. You describe yourself at about that time as being arrogant, lonely with few mm. role models. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the writing industry is, I don't know much else like it. Um, for me, I, I never had a mentor. I never had a role model. I was more or less trying to figure out how to live this life as a creative. And at that point, all I knew was to publish as much as I can and back myself as much as I can. And Perhaps I've grown up in America in a society which, uh, for better or worse, tends to uh, congratulate and exalt uh, those people that individualistically put themselves forward. Uh, as we all know, in Australia, that can be very different. It's, it's more of a who do you think you are, mate, kind of situation. And um, I didn't have the maturity uh, to separate myself from the work at that point in my life. And uh, I, I, paid the, I suffered. You talk about that time flying to Melbourne for the book launch, the migraine returns, and uh, after the book was published, you cried for days. Hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of creatives can relate to this. There's a, there's a thing that happens where when you work on something for so long and so intensely and often in a quite isolated environment, um, and, and you think this is going to be the answer to all your problems. You know, from day one in school, we work hard and we take the test and we progress. And, and in normal jobs, I guess there's promotions and that sort of thing. And for me, at that time, I just, I kind of thought once that first book, I mean, I wrote it when I was 25. And then, uh, yeah, when I was 27, it came out. And the truth is that nothing really changes <laughs> unless you're extremely lucky. Uh, yeah, you, perhaps you get to write the next one if you sell a certain number of copies. Um, I think I was looking for something almost, perhaps you could call it like a religious experience, something transformative, something that would, something that would demarcate a, a division between uh, boyhood and manhood or adolescence and manhood or something like that. And uh, yeah, nothing changed except for I, I tortured myself, I suppose. Well, something changed because you say, I began to disappear. Mm. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. And so, yeah, in literature and life, uh, I began to disappear. And I suppose you could say what ended up happening was, yeah, I spent a significant amount of that 10-month period alone in my room. And 
I think for me as well, like what's really important with this story is that, you know, there's a lot of talk around mental health and depression and anxiety. And I think that it's tremendous. But I still think that chronic pain is one step removed. Chronic pain for me and for a lot of people suffering is so isolating and so invisible. And to be honest, Philip, before I suffered chronic pain, I had no idea how debilitating it could be. Um, I didn't even know that it was something that affects one in five Australians aged 45 and older. And of course, I wanted needed to make sense of my experience, but I also wanted a wider dialogue with everyone else who was suffering. I needed to tell them that they were not alone as well. Why do you, why do you think you tried so hard to hide from people how much pain you were in? I mean, you know, the obvious question, the obvious answer, um, you know, toxic masculinity in this country is is fairly intense and I would say alive. But I think the truth is that, you know, I just kept thinking I was going to get better. And I didn't want I didn't want to burden people with my story. You know, the world is already suffering so much in so many ways. I, I didn't want to add to that pain. Um, you know, I'm fairly proud and I'm and I'm fairly uh, stoic, I would say. And I, I thought I hoped I thought I could fix myself. Um, and yeah, that that took a long time to figure out how to communicate both to myself and to the people around me. You did seek medical help, but you found doctors, well, not all that helpful. Some of them uh, simply suggested uh, that you try yoga or do some Cairo or just suck it up. Yeah, yeah. I remember I saw one doctor. Uh, this is after I'd had my brain scans and uh, I went into his office and he basically said to me, he was like, so you're a writer? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, well, mate, uh, not, a lot of, not a lot of hope for you in that, I'd say. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, it's clearly not working out. I suggest you do something else with your life. <laughs> and I remember leaving there feeling so like I could feel the rage in my body because it, this was the only thing I ever wanted to do. And yet I knew something was wrong. I knew perhaps at that point that maybe there was something more in like, the mind-body connection about what was going wrong. Maybe there was something that I could fix, but I did not have the tools at that point. You know, I couldn't even look at a screen to kind of do that. So, yeah, it, it felt very much like being trapped. We'll get to uh, where and when you start work on the on the trains, but before that, you considered throwing yourself under one. What stopped you? Mm. Ultimately, I think my family. Um, yeah, I still remember. I mean, obviously, it's a fairly intense thing to talk about, but. You know, a lot of men for various reasons and women, but especially men in this country go through this. And for me, you know, I remember standing on that platform and I remember weighing it up, I guess, weighing it up. It, it wasn't that I wanted to die, Philip. Like, I did not want to die. I just wanted, like, needed the pain to end. And, yeah, I'm obviously thrilled that I didn't. I think a few people are. But... Yeah, the love, the love of my family and, yeah, I mean, we've already in my family had similar things happen in extended family and so, you know. So one day you take a couple of painkillers, you open your computer, you type Sydney plus no experience plus full time <laughs> into Google and Sydney yeah. Trains is hiring train guards. Yeah, 
Yeah, speed typed an application, sent her in, no idea what it said. Didn't think I had a hope in hell, to be honest. Uh, but, yeah, for whatever reason, I think there was something like 40,000 people who applied. There were maybe, you know, 40 jobs. Um, this is the, also the kind of job that attracts such a wide group of people. You know, there are pilots, there are doctors, there are school leavers, there are, there are people as young as 17, as old as 84. It's a, it's a tremendous uh, – it's – it, it brings so many people together and so many people looking for a, a difference or a change in their lives if they haven't been uh, satisfied or are too sick of working elsewhere. But So, yeah, I got the job and uh, spent the next um, five or six months or so in train school, which sounds like a joke but is extremely serious. And, uh, yeah, you, you learn an incredible amount of information. Uh, you have to memorize every station in order. You have to know where all the stop signals are. You have to know uh, how to test trains for faults. Um, you have to know how to drive a train. But you, you were quite naughty because you'd am amuse yourself <laughs> and people on the trains by making funny announcements. You'd say, next stop is Ashfield, but for all you singles out there, we'll call it Pashfield. It's a wonder they kept you on. <laughs> I think they kind of liked it, to be honest, because I think there's something about humour, you know. It brings people together. And for me as well, you know, like the, the trains are the great leveller. And so I'll be, I was sitting there and, you know, and one of my other favourite ones was whenever we went through Como and I'd say, attention customers, next stop is Como, named after the Holden Como door. And I'd just I'd sit back and I'd just watch people laugh and suddenly talk to one another. It was beautiful. Beautiful. I should hire you as a gag writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay. I'm now, I'm your free. migraines nonetheless were coming back and you realised yeah. physical cures weren't the only answer, so uh, you end up reading about psychosomatic causes. Yeah, well, that was a really funny one because essentially what happened, and I can only put it down to a certain miracle, but one day um, I knew running always helped. I didn't know why it just did and and I remember I went for a run and I ended up at Bronte and I uh I finished the run and I just looked at the sky and I just said like please like please come on something help me um and I opened my eyes and there was a sign and the sign said do you get back pain neck pain scarcity pain uh migraines headaches and and I thought yeah I do so I went and saw I called my little brother um, I still couldn't look at screens again at this point. And I asked him about it, um, what this sign was. It was for someone called a Rolfer. And he said, he's a, also a paramedic, by the way. My sister's a doctor. Um, and he said, mate, I don't know what this is. It's probably a scam, but you're finally making some good money. So why don't you check it out? And I told, went to this guy's house, told him my whole story, this mansion kind of in Bronte, which, you know, I was like, here we go. Um, and he said, I can't help you, but I think I know someone who can. And he told me to read a book and I said, I can't read. That's the whole point. I can't read. And then I asked him, is it your book? Like how much do I have to pay you? And he said, no, nah, uh, you can get it for free online. It was written by a doctor in the 90s, a doctor called Dr. John Sarno. And the long and short of it is that he was a uh, back surgeon, leading back surgeon in New York, and he would operate on a lot of people on their backs, herniated discs, slipped discs, trying to fix their pain, but no one would heal. And uh, he came up, which, what, he came up with what is essentially called, you know, the mind-body connection. 
Um, and he started interviewing people about their lives, about their traumas, about their jobs, about their stresses. And by treating, he, he basically said that when you unconsciously um, repress guilt and fear, your body is going to let you know about it and it's going to talk to you. And, and he proved that when that happens, uh, oxygen basically, de the, the oxygen the blood deoxygenates travels to a site in the body and restricts a muscle. And um, by treating the symptom, which is what we do in the West, just taking a pill or applying a Band-Aid, it never fixes it. And so for me, what I had to do was sit in those very uncomfortable, uh, I would say, states of guilt and fear that I had. And through help of a psychotherapist, um, working through those, the symptoms in my body eventually disappeared. And um, mm. one, of the, one of the problems with uh, long-term pain, it's not only the pain itself that's the issue, but it's the Damoclean sword. It's uh, not only the memory of the pain, but the anxiety mm. of it returning. Absolutely, 100%. You know, and for me, like, you know, even sitting in a computer, what I'm doing now, like that for so long, for so many years was something that uh, felt impossible for me. Looking, learn, relearning how to look at screens. And I guess when you get down to it, it's we're looking at you need to you need to redirect your neural pathways, um, which is extremely hard, especially when, yeah, you've had something that has affected you for so long. But. My message out there would be it is possible and you can do it. Um, yeah, you absolutely can do it. But you've also got to constrain the ego, don't you, and your drive for perfection. Absolutely. I mean, these things often happen uh, to people who are perfectionists and people pleasers. And, you know, as much as I would never, ever, Philip, in a million years want to go through this experience again, I would say that, you know, this pain did teach me something. And, and pain, pain does talk to you. Your body always talks to you. And it might not be the most pleasant thing that it's in the way it's communicating, but it is trying to communicate. And nowadays, whenever, and I still get chronic pain all the time. It's not like I'm cured forever, but I have these tools now that I work with where I, listen, I sit down, I listen, I ask myself questions, I, I, I free write, I try and figure out what is exact, what is the thing that is causing this tension in my body. And uh, yeah, for lack of a better phrase, I try to make myself whole again. Oliver, when did you start to be able to write again? It's interesting. I mean, when I, when I started working on the trains, you know, I've been, I've been working to be able to look at, you know, a page for you know, 10 sort of minutes at a time. And depending on where I was in my chronic pain journey, that would, that would dip and raise. But it was really interesting because I knew when I was working on the train that between stations, you know, for example, between Central and Redfern, I'd have about two minutes. Two minutes after I'd closed the doors, done my announcements, I had two minutes where I could sit there. And, uh, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to use your phones on the trains, which is actually a huge blessing. And so I would sit there and I'd pull out my notebook and my pen and I would write these little paragraphs, these little memories, trying to get heart, trying to figure, trying to sketch these times from, from uh, yeah, this, this pain. And so something really interesting happened in the book where the paragraphs are quite short, at least in the beginning. Um, 
And that was a direct response to the railway. The, <laughs> the railway, in many ways, structured the book, which was a total surprise. I think it might be an appropriate time to ask you to read something. Absolutely. So this is a short excerpt. I only drink two days of the year, when it's my birthday and when it's not my birthday, the driver said. And then he burst into laughter and shook his head. You young blokes don't get humour. We were walking through the train yard at Flemo on our way to prep a train. So what's your story? Been out long? Bit over a year, I said. Thought you looked a little wet behind the ears. I've been on the railways for 35 years. Course before that, I was driving freight. Bloody hell, that was a job. Back when I was a young fella, we'd drive for days on end, just the desert and your mate and the sun and your feet on the dash. Mind you, that was all before drug testing. I don't smoke anymore. Barely drink, he said, winking, except for those two days a year. Oliver, at the end of stories that uh, discuss suicide, we always give out the lifeline number, which is 13 11 14 13. 1114 and uh, Gladys and Polly's, please call it if, uh, if Oliver's story has brought up any issues that you'd like support for. But I'm wondering if we could close with some words of wisdom from you, Oliver, for people dealing with chronic pain at the end of their tether. Absolutely. I would say always stay open. Stay open to... to everything. Stay open to the possibility that you can heal. You know, I think what's most important, again, and I, and I said it before, is that your body is trying to talk to you and listen to it. Re reconnect with yourself. You know, I know how hard it is. I know how debilitating and isolating this can be, but there is hope. You can heal. Your body is talking to you. And yeah, I would wish that for you. Thank you very much, Oliver. Oliver Moll, author of Train Lord, published by Penguin. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.